Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. If you want to get the most out of your streaming services, ExpressVPN is a no-brainer. Visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 510, Random Thoughts. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion, and I know what you're thinking. Isn't this the podcast where the hosts break down an episode of Star Trek, then examine it for morals, meanings, and messages? Well, right you are. I mean, right I am, because I knew that's what you were thinking. And in today's episode, we'll be examining random thoughts. The one where the Voyager crew gets caught up in some legal trouble on a planet full of telepaths. Emperor Augustus' father died when he was four years old, so he was adopted by his great-uncle, Julius Caesar. Um, what? It was just a random thought I had. I I, I think about the Roman Empire from time to time. It's, It's a thing, apparently. Apparently. I mean, you can ruminate on that, and in the meantime, I'll tell people how to reach us with their own random thoughts. Mission Log is the conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with Think About It. That's right, you guessed it, this week's trivia. Also, the month of August was named after Emperor Augustus. All right, this week's episode, Random Thoughts. Uh, It was written by Kenneth Biller. Not a surprise here to have Voyager co-producer and prolific writer Ken's name in the credits. He had the inspiration to mold a contemporary topic into Star Trek setting and saw it through to the end, crafting the story and teleplay here. The most recent of his episodes that we discussed was Nemesis. And appropriately coming off the directing duty for Nemesis, Alexander Singer returns to helm this episode of Voyager. As you probably recall, Alex was a fan of TOS, working on the same lot back in the day, and finally got his chance when he was called up to direct multiple TNG episodes, which led to credits on both DS9 and Voyager. 
Now, in this episode, we're treated to a few montages that peer into Tuvok's psyche. You can, of course, freeze frame throughout them and spot a couple of brand new shots created for the episode. And you'll easily notice that many of the others are from Voyager itself and other iterations of Star Trek. And there are a few non-Star Trek shots from the movie Event Horizon, also from Paramount. Made that very easy. All right. Let's meet our guest stars. It's time to meet the Mari, and there are quite a few of them. Our story mostly concerns this handful, though, who we encounter in the marketplace. There's Frain, whose actions are the catalyst for the drama. He's played by Bobby Burns, who is typically a stunt actor and stunt coordinator. He's made a few appearances on both DS9 and Voyager in his time with the franchise, but his work is mostly behind the scenes. In addition to track, Bobby's credits, more than 150 of them, stretch from TV to major motion pictures like Minority Report, Titanic, and Jurassic Park 3. And we don't know her character name, but Jeanette Miller is an older Mari woman who surprises everyone by becoming a murderer. The Florida native has been working in front of the camera since 1955 in a career that spans guest roles and recurring characters like in the 2009 series The Middle and feature films such as Legion, Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me, and Norbit. In an unfortunate encounter with that character in the marketplace, we also have Tali, played by Rebecca McFarland. Rebecca grew up in Louisiana and made her way to L.A. to land a slew of TV guest roles starting in the 90s. Seinfeld, Party of Five, Silk Stockings, those and more led to recurring gigs on shows like Working Girl and Two and a Half Men. More recently, Rebecca had a prominent role in the MTV series Faking It. Malin and Gwill are a couple of guys up to no good. Ted Barba plays Malin, and like Bobby Burns, he is also a recurring part of Star Trek's stunt team in this era of production. And while he has a respectable number of character credits as an actor, he has an incredible run of more than 300 credits as a stunt performer and coordinator going back to the late 70s. It would be impossible to give his resume its due, but he has doubled for everyone from David Boreans to Chris Pine to Scott Bakula to Bruce Willis, and yes, even Bernie Capel on The Love Boat. Wayne Perre plays Gwill. Right around the time of this episode of Voyager, Wayne had a recurring gig on Walker, Texas Ranger. And ever since the 90s, he has been, well, easily working in TV and some major feature films while also stretching into directing and producing. He turns up in Spider-Man Homecoming, American Horror Story, Ocean's 13, and very recently, as of this recording, in a recurring role on the Showtime series, Your Honor. Finally, let's say hello again to a returning Star Trek guest star, Gwyneth Walsh, who plays Nimira. Her name should be a familiar one to our listeners. Gwyneth, of course, appeared several times in the TNG days, right from the House of Duras as Bator. She reprised that role in Star Trek Generations and then again in DS9. She also voiced the character in a Star Trek video game. And so far, this episode of Voyager is Gwyneth's final Star Trek credit. 
Pick a number between 1 and 256. Now imagine that's how many rockhopper penguins just randomly appeared in the mess hall. That's more of a pseudo-random thought, but still entertaining. Prologue Voyager is in standard orbit around a planet inhabited by a race of telepaths called the Mari, and Captain Janeway and her crew are enjoying a brief respite with their newfound potential allies. Tom Paris has just returned from the surface with a special gift for Balana, and is caught off guard in the transporter room by Neelix, who needs Tom's expertise on dating. Neelix is enamored with a Mari merchant named Tali, and admits to Tom that he's ready to finally move on from being separated from Kess for so long. Tom advises Neelix to just be himself, but to lighten up on the cologne. Meanwhile, on the planet, Captain Janeway and Bellana are in the market square, trying to negotiate for a much-needed resonator coil with Gwil, a telepathic merchant who keenly reads Janeway's thoughts, which is somewhat to his advantage in the bargaining process. Suddenly, a stranger accidentally knocks over Bellana, which makes her anger flare up for just a moment. The stranger promptly apologizes as Gwil rushes to Bellana's aid to make sure if she's all right. In another part of the market square, Neelix definitely makes an impression on Tally, or is it the other way around? As her telepathy hones in on Neelix's thoughts about her tugging his face whiskers, but Neelix quickly pivots back to thinking about produce. Yeah. Close by, Tuvok is being toured around by Namira, the local chief examiner who expresses interest in Voyager's security protocols, and he invites her to beam up with him to continue their conversation. Suddenly, Janeway and Bellana race across the market square towards a ruckus and stop the man who earlier bumped into Bellana from beating another merchant to death. When Janeway asks him why he's beating the other man, the assailant admits that he doesn't know. Act 1. On Voyager, after a thorough tour of the ship's security systems, especially the brig, Namira is somewhat taken aback by the idea of confining individuals as punishment. Tuvok elaborates on the rare but necessary security measure, but Namira deems it as both unenlightened and barbaric. Their philosophical conversation will have to wait, however, as news of the incident in the market reaches them, demanding their immediate return to the planet's surface for further investigation. Shortly after, Namira begins her routine investigation with her three suspects, eyewitnesses, three eyewitnesses. After escorting them to the security office, Namira informs Janeway that she'll be scanning each of them telepathically while a highly advanced transcription device records all of their thoughts, every action, every detail, every tug of Neelix's whiskers, everything. Namira's investigation takes an unexpected turn while questioning Bellana regarding the incident involving her collision with a man in the market. Bellana reluctantly admits that she had a momentary impulse to retaliate, and Namira, reacting to this admission, places Bellana under arrest, charging her with the crime of aggravated violent thought resulting in grave bodily harm, even though Bellana herself never touched the stranger in question. Act 2 as chief examiner of Mari Law, Namira proclaims without hesitation that Balana's violent thoughts in the market square were so intense that they were telepathically transferred to Frain, the man who accidentally collided with her when she was bartering with Gwil. Janeway backs Balana's innocence and believes that Namira can't imprison someone for mere thoughts. Namira, firmly standing on precedent, rejects Janeway's position and proceeds to schedule Balana for an angermatic purge an incredibly risky procedure to remove Bellana's violent thoughts. 
And regardless of how Janeway protests this decision, Namira reminds her that this is how the Mari have been able to remove violence from their society, and the engrammatic purge is an integral part of the Mari justice system. With little recourse in convincing Namira otherwise, Janeway and Tuvok begin their own investigation. Their efforts yield very little success except for uncovering details from Frayn's history of multiple charges related to violent thoughts. While sympathetic to their desire to clear Balana's crime, Namira dismisses their evidence all the same. Later that day, as Neelix and Seven of Nine converse on the planet's surface, Seven bluntly opines that Balana's cultural ignorance and Voyager's naive attitude towards exploration in general are the reasons why they are always finding themselves in harm's way. Suddenly, they are both startled by a blood-curdling scream and soon discover an elderly woman holding a bloody knife, standing over the body of a bloodied and lifeless young Mari woman, the one Neelix was growing increasingly fond of. Act 3. On Voyager, Neelix is beside himself with grief and pleads with Tuvok to spare no effort in identifying and bringing justice to the person responsible for murdering Tali. Tuvok believes that there is more to what is happening than meets the eye, as both Balana and Frayn are in custody, and that the same violent thought that stirred Frayn to violence is what plagued the older Mari woman. Once again, Namira is sympathetic towards Tuvok's need to prove Balana's innocence, but is resolute in carrying out the angermatic purge regardless. Tuvok believes that a mind meld with Balana may uncover certain details that she may not even realize may be relevant. And, after initiating the meld, both Tuvok and Balana are surprised that the one common denominator in all of the individual acts of violence in the marketplace is Gwil, unlike Frayn and Balana, who is still freely walking around amidst the greater and unsuspecting Mari population. Tuvok activates his full investigative spectrum and turns his attention to Gwil, who he tracks down on his way home to dinner with his family. Their conversation of the battle of wits and wills, as both men verbally and telepathically study each other. Gwil wonders why Tuvok is interested in him, and Tuvok senses that Gwil's telepathic ability is somehow connected to the violent thought that is infecting the greater Mari population. However, after tracking Gwil to a darkened storeroom of sorts, he observed both Gwil and another Mari named Malin, exchanging some kind of currency. But to purchase what? After confronting Gwil and Malin, Tuvok soon discovers that Gwil is the facilitator of black market violent thoughts, the kind that have been deemed illegal by the Mari Constabulary, the kind that have been kept out of the public domain allowing, as Namira told Janeway earlier, the Mari people to live long and prosper. But in order to uncover the whole and unexpurgated truth of this conspiracy, Tuvok removes his comm badge to forge an uneasy alliance with Gwil, who wants the one thing of value that Tuvok has to offer his own personal and violent thoughts. Gwil dismisses Malin for now, promising him that when they next see each other, he will have amassed more and even darker thoughts for sale. Act 4. Tuvok believes that the only way to save Balana is to expose and exchange his violent thoughts with Gwil and gain his trust and favor. And in doing so, Tuvok exposes Gwil to just a small taste of the intoxicating and lucrative product inside Tuvok's mind. Tuvok feigns exhaustion to buy more time in order for Gwil to confess his business operations, using Balana's violent thoughts as the bait that Gwil would be unable to resist. And after a period of both verbal and telepathic exchanges, 
Tuvok is able to coerce Quill into exposing the criminal nature of his business, as he and his network of conspirators target alien visitors, like those from Voyager, and especially like Balana, in order to siphon their violent thoughts and sell them on the Mari Black Market. Believing he has all of the evidence he needs, Tuvok attempts to escort Gwil into custody, but is assaulted by both Malin and Gwil while trying to bring Gwil into Namira as the proof he needs to save Balana, who is running out of time. On Voyager, Captain Janeway tries once again to negotiate with Namira for Balana's release and for her help to find Tuvok, who has gone missing. Namira apologizes for what she and her associates have to do, even as Tom pleads with Captain Janeway to bring an end to this madness. And, immediately after cutting off all communication with Janeway and Voyager, Balana is dragged into the security office, where Namira has her security officers sedate Balana and prepare her for the engrammatic purge. Act 5. Somewhere in the bowels of the city, Gwil and his associates trudge Tuvok to a secluded place where he forcibly tries to telepathically steal Tuvok's thoughts. But Tuvok offers no resistance and invites Gwil to come even closer. Unbeknownst to him... Gwil places his face close enough to Tuvok where he is able to latch onto Gwil with the full force of the Vulcan mind meld, opening all of his deepest, darkest, and most violent thoughts and flooding the mind of the ill-prepared Gwil. Unable to recover from such a torrent of violence and savagery, Gwil succumbs to the overwhelming and emotional mental overdose. Back in Namira's office, the engrammatic purge has begun and is in its initial phase. And before Balana's procedure is able to progress any further, Janeway contacts Namira, who accepts the call and hears the full truth of what Tuvok was able to uncover, that Gwil was responsible for the violent attacks that happened in the marketplace, and that he and his associates have been selling black market thoughts to a very receptive customer base. Customers who Namira knows now are the byproduct of a darker underbelly of her society that she believed has moved past this kind of criminal behavior. And Tuvok suggests that all the evidence Namira needs to further her investigation is with Gwil, who is confined in Voyager's brig. After leaving orbit, the doctor is able to treat Balana from the minimal effects of the early stages of the engrammatic purge. And as Tuvok escorts her from sickbay, he confesses to Balana that he has discovered a newfound respect for what she must endure on a daily basis by trying to keep her aggressive Klingon nature in check. Unable to help himself... Tuvok, of course, offers his assistance in helping Balana learn Vulcan disciplinary techniques to improve her self-control. Sometime later, after barging into Janeway's ready room, Seven voices concerns to the captain about the unnecessary risks associated with Voyager's philosophy of exploration and first contact, and suggests optimizing a more direct path home. Janeway disagrees and defends her mission, emphasizing the value of gaining knowledge through encounters like those with the Mari— Seven accepts the captain's explanation, even though, as Chakotay told Tom earlier, that Janeway is still the boss. The end. All right, Norman, good job, but uh, but I got I got questions. I got so many questions about this. Episode. I have thoughts. <laughs> you, you probably some random thoughts. Probably some yeah. well seated, appropriate thoughts in addition to the random thoughts. But let, I tell you what, we'll do random stuff now, and then we'll get to our deep thoughts in a moment. With um, Jack Handy. <laughs> oh, oh, I miss Jack Handy and Deep Thoughts. Yeah. Those were so good. <laughs> Send us your favorite Jack Handy lines, please, because those are <laughs> always good. All right, so first of all, the premise of this episode, they have spent three days on the Mario homeworld, and they are just now about to get into all this trouble. I'm curious what happened in the last three days. 
that they were not <laughs> getting into a bunch of trouble with their random thoughts, because that seems like a very long time to go without overstepping. 72 hours, and yeah, they didn't get into trouble on the first, I don't know, couple? I'm thinking, look, I, I'm thinking with me, my time limit is about eight minutes. And then, and then <laughs> if you're reading my mind, uh, this is going to be a problem. So when Tom says to Neelix at the very start of this episode, uh, go a little easier on the musk, mm-hmm. I wanted to see what the, the uh, transporter chief extra uh-huh. was going to do. And he did kind of smirk. Did he? And smile at I that. Didn't so that. Oh. I, I like that performer, like the extra getting into the bit. Oh, I that's that good. Nice. That's excellent. Yeah. And I do like in that scene that we get a mention of Kess. I mean, it, it's continuity and it, and it acknowledges yeah. that Neelix actually has and had a life. You know, that's mm-hmm. just a nice little bit there. But man, I, I got to think that telepaths as sale, salespeople, that must be the worst thing. But I wondered, do they save this little trick only for non-telepaths? Because think about it, it would be awful if telepaths were just always reading each other during every transaction. You would never get anything done. I have, I don't know how many pages I wrote on this that I had to edit down. (laughs) I will get to this in discussion because that is a very interesting point for sure. All right. Yeah. Speaking of Gwil, the telepath who was trying to not get one-upped by Janeway because he could read her mind. Gwil is just kind of like a degree off center from Guile. So I'm wondering if that's where the name came from. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um, And maybe informs us a little about the character, like moving forward. A bit. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Whisker tugging. It's the new Umox. So very exciting to know that. And I did wonder, do Vulcans speak telepathically normally? Because I don't think we've ever established that, that that's just a thing that they would do all the time. And now that made me think that I kind of want a whole episode of Star Trek that's just Vulcans, and it, it and it's just them speaking telepathically the whole time. So basically an hour, it's a bunch of Vulcans earnestly staring at each other in a room. I think that'd be an intriguing episode. I'm glad you brought up Kess, because now it got me thinking. What would Kess's experience have been like <gasps> down on the planet? Oh. Would she have brought the fire, John? Oh, I would th- I would hope that she would bring the fire. Yeah, yeah. she would bring the fire. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the, the surprise of like, oh, you, you might have to use the brig on your ship from time to time. Tuvok, are you going to mention the, oh, I don't know, the serial killer who was on board up until not too long ago? And that entire scene was basically how you don't say lawn suitor without saying lawn suitor. <laughs> right. It's, it's like, well, you've only had to use it about 1% of the time. Like, okay, yeah. but that 1% was a serial killer. <laughs> right. You know? Always worrisome on an alien planet where they're like, here, put your head in this piece of technology that you've never seen before and that definitely was not designed for people like you who we've never encountered before. That That is worrisome. And they're just like, oh, yeah, it works. It just... Sucks the engrams right out of your head. When Janeway sat in the chair, first mm-hmm. of all, Gwyneth's, uh, I guess maybe it was a direction that she kind of like firmly placed Janeway's head back into the chair and then Kate's response. Yes. I'm not sure if that was all ad lib, but it was really well done. Yeah. It reminded me of the whole welcome to recall because I was like the total recall chair. Recall, and then recall, recall. Yeah. And uh-huh. then after Janeway gets interrogated, she grabs up and she says, my name is not Quaid. You know? <laughs> nice. I love it. So Janeway is she's there and she says, OK, so you're going to read my mind. You're going to record my thoughts. Mm-hmm. 
and says, well, I can't lie to you. It's like, oh, that's your response? Like, I have a problem with this isn't your response? Yeah. I, I mean, look, that that's the time that Janeway just threatens to blow up the ship. Like, even though she's not on it, that that's just the, the, the knee-jerk reaction. It's like, you're going to do this thing to me? Oh, yeah, well, I'm going to blow this place up. <laughs> but no, this Janeway is just like, yeah, fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. No problem. But the thing is that even if she thought that, would Namira know that she thought that? Oh, uh, exactly. This is exactly. the danger that you're dealing with yeah. with telepaths. Yeah, yeah. I do wonder how Janeway got coins to trade with in this place that they've never been before. And she's unaccustomed to handling currency. So do they just do a little research and then go up to the ship and replicate a bunch? And like, they'll never know. Just here, just use that. <laughs> we're, go- we're going to crash their economy. Bet you didn't think that was coming, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and of course, Neelix, sweet, innocent Neelix, only thinking about those plums for a pie. Because, uh, you know, it's just mm. Neelix. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really like the scene when Namira was uh, interrogating uh, Janeway, Neelix, and Bellana because the cutaways after each question to each individual character differently and kind of randomized was really nice. I just, I love the way that it was edited. It was really snappy on pace and kind of kept the entire process going. I thought yeah. it was good. Yeah, it was really yeah. nice stuff. And uh, by the way, in Grammatic Purge, that is the name of my new Faith No More cover band. So oh, I'm just, that. I'm calling that one. Okay. I said in Grammatic Purge so many times in the uh, recap that I was like, is this like the peewee secret word? Because people would just go bananas. You just well, well, you're going to owe somebody a royalty for every one of those. That, that, that's right. why. Yeah. So I'm wondering, why do they need to quote unquote lobotomize or ingrammatically purge images from Belanda's mind? Why don't they just ban her from the planet? I, well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the the memory is already out there, but I, I, I guess if they. I don't know, maybe it just looks bad. Like, well, we're not going to punish this person because they're new here. And banning from the planet is like, sure, so what? <laughs> like, don't throw me in the briar patch. I'm glad to get out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be mm-hmm. fine. I do like that, it, you know, the, the set design is interesting in this. I read some comments from some of the production that they just, they didn't like the production design on this episode. Uh, Numira is pushing some buttons on her desk that I swear it just looks like characters from Galaga or Space Invaders. <laughs> You know, go back and freeze frame that. It's very obvious. Um, oh, Galaga. That's a plus one reference. You're right welcome. There. You're welcome. Well How does Tom back on Voyager know what's going on? Like, he's just waiting for Janeway in the transporter room. So how, how would he, I mean, I guess Bolana could have called him on the communicator, but that would be a very long conversation. And then he also, what, just runs to the transporter room because he assumes Janeway is coming next. I, like, that. that was... Yeah, there's a little bit yeah. of dramatic license there. Mm-hmm. And then I, Chakotay says, oh, I'm sure the captain wouldn't object to Tom sitting in her chair. I I bet she would. I, I think she would. And very interesting that Tom is just ready to fight, I guess, a bunch of pacifists. He's like, they'll be easy to take. They're pacifists. That was so bizarre to me. That entire scene was so bizarre to me because going back to like when Tom sits down the first time, there's a cut away to Robert Beltran mm-hmm. and timestamp this, folks. Look at him at 16 minutes, 42 seconds. He almost looks like he's about to break yes. character because there's a little bit of a smile curling up in the side of his mouth. Like, 
I don't even want to do this line or something. I'm just, you know, again, that, that's just, you know, supposition on my part, but it was just weird. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad you pointed you that know. one out. I noticed that one too. Yeah. And that whole th- exchange, you know, when, he, when Jacote says, and what risk an all out confrontation with the Mari. And you, you know, you just mentioned this, you know, they're just a bunch of pacifists. Tom <laughs> says they're no match for us. <laughs> oh my God. Like, is this like the bookend episode to justice from the next generation? Ah, I'm so glad. All right. So again, in mission log tradition, we do not read each other's notes. And yet justice was right at the top of my mind in this one, for sure. Mm -hmm. Good call. Good call. Cut to the scene in Janeway's ready room. She and Tuvok are both reading pads. And that is some really weird blocking where they're they're like sitting across the same desk, very narrow desk. It's not even the desk. It's like the return on her desk. And their hands are kind of crossed, reading the pads over each other. Like, it is just strange. It, it is a bit of very contrived blocking for TV. And then, then when they do the cuts, they obviously cheated that out a bit. So, yeah, it, it's a strange moment. Like, it would be very uncomfortable to be sitting in a room reading with someone and literally, you know, like your arms are crossed while you're reading. It's, it, it's, it's odd. Now, I do love the whole concept here about thoughts being viral, and we'll get into that, of course. I mean, I was thinking like a different kind of viral, like the mm. STD kind of viral, but not like... Not that disco was involved. But no, 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 maybe, of course. Maybe yeah. there was some kind of disco involved. <laughs> okay, well, you didn't get thing. the nightlife of the planet. So, yeah. No. I, I got to say, like, with Tuvok, I, I love it when Tim Russ gets to play Lairs. And there is this line that he has with Namira. And I thought, like, is this the closest thing we get to a Tuvok seduction? When, he, when he's saying, I admire your culture and I have enjoyed your company. I'm like... Oh, hey. Yeah. Oh, it's getting get a little warm in here. That's that, that's Tuvok speak for uh, yeah, he's got the hots. Well, it was the same kind of energy, you know, when, uh, you know, that I guess it's like, you know, that gatekeeper or that watcher, you know, mm-hmm. was watching Voyager and then that alien took on a mm. different form or a hologram mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that tried, you know, to connect with Tuvok in that way. And Tuvok yeah. had the exact same type of, yeah. you know, reaction to her. Yeah, that was really you know? cool. Yeah, good yeah. stuff. Seven of nine, not a lot of seven and nine in this episode, which is good because I think we've gotten a lot of seven and now it's time to focus on other characters too. No sympathy whatsoever for their situation. And I found that to be really enjoyable and that'll come back. Literally did not see that coming the first time I watched it with Neelix's crush getting stabbed and just bleeding all over the marketplace ground. Really surprised. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of blood on the knife. There's a lot of blood on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Did not see that coming at all. And I really liked how how Johnny acted the scene uh, later on in the transition between uh, acts, was it, two and Mm. three? Yeah. Where he was basically saying, Tuvok, find this person and punish them. You know? um, Yes. There was was some vengeance. Yeah. Vengeant thoughts? Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. that were... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Or Good I stuff. say vengeful thoughts because vengeant isn't a word, but I said it anyway. <laughs> it so, is now. <laughs> it is now. Yeah. Uh, I really like the way that they framed the scene when Tuvok uh, beamed down to the interrogation room and mind melded with Balana because there was like a, a wonderful, soft, organic approach to what Tuvok did to read her mind. And in the backdrop, uh, you have yeah. the machine that yeah. invaded their minds earlier. Yeah. So I, I just thought it was a nice juxtaposition of 
how how that transpired. Good point. Yeah, Gwil, very interesting. He just comes across as creepy and and a little guilty, you know, right away. But I wonder, like, is Tuvok not that? Like, at what points is Tuvok using a mental block around Gwil? Because, you know, Gwil, right away when they meet, he just, like, drops into Tuvok's subconscious. Like, here, here I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm poking <laughs> around, you know. It, but I do love, again, when Tuvok gets those great one-liners and he can deliver them like no other, just saying no thank you to the offer of Gwil helping him suppress his thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, good. Not rude, but curt and, and to the point. Yeah. Yes, yes. So good. Uh, I do wonder what the exchange rate is for about 3,000 rens, if I've got those burning a hole in my pocket. I have a question for you. Like, yeah. What's the exchange rate for 3,000 Stimpies? <laughs> I just you know, look, I'm also look, that, about look that. that up, gang. Yeah, yeah. I, I laughed out loud when this happened, and I know this is a very dramatic point in the in the episode. But Tuvok removes his com badge, yeah, because Gwell doesn't want either uh, he or an associate being recorded, right? And he throws it on the ground. And like now, if their uniforms actually had pockets, he would just stick it in his pocket. That's, that's all he would need to do. Yeah, right. So you hear this clanging sound right. on the floor. <laughs> I do love throughout this. I love Inspector Tuvok. In these scenes, I, I love the whole game of him luring Gwil in to see his mind and basically setting the trap. I, I just, I love this kind of thing with him, especially. He's undercover, and I want to see more of him like this in the series overall. I just think it's so good. And then, then, wow, the first images from Gwil's mind that we get, very interesting, especially because they have Dobermans on the Mira homeworld. That's apparently. good to know. Yeah. Uh, they're an interstellar species, apparently. So I'm wondering, even though we didn't see any reference to Lon Suter, mm. with all of those memories, especially with, you know, in Meld, that the relationship that Tuvok and, and Lon Suter had, if Gwil siphoned any of those memories perchance. Yeah. He had oh, to have. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's got to be in there by, by implication right? at the very least, you know. A- again, well, I, I said it before, but I wondered again in the scene, like, can Gwil not tell Tuvok's real goal here because he is telepathic and like how right. good I guess the answer is very good how good is Tuvok at compartmentalizing and say well here's what I'm really trying to do but I'm going to act like I'm doing this thing so I can get to my goal of what I really want to do like that that is a lot of well 3D chess in his mind oh that's chess in three dimensions I've heard about this yes yes <laughs> very good also known as space chess space chess mm-hmm. right yeah. but there are depending on which science fiction fandom that you are you're following there are rules to telepathy and there are rules to telepathic scanning I will get into mm-hmm. that a little bit later on but if Gwil is starting to scan Tuvok and Tuvok's a telepath it's kind of like if someone's like kind of touching you like on the shoulder mm-hmm. you know that someone's touching you on the shoulder you may not know who because if they're doing that from behind you but you're like hey someone's touching my shoulder maybe I should be alarmed about this I don't know right you know? right yeah good good point uh, I just want to point out an effect shot I love that dorsal view of Voyager over the planet looks really nice um, we don't I don't think we've gotten that shot before so maybe they're just flexing a bit with the cg yeah because we have Mm -hmm. uh uh, foundation imaging now doing Mm -hmm. the uh, cgi you know after year of hell yeah now knowing that we know about vulcan strength because we know that vulcans are super strong yeah three mari take down tuvok so i'm wondering if they're all similar in strength because a one-on-one tuvok should be able to fight at least one or two of them but all three of them they were able to do that that puts a little bit more threat in their situation he put up a little bit of a fight 
But yeah. I mean, like if they started out, he definitely got in some good moves there. But then, yeah, he does get taken down. So I guess they're strong. Another scene that I laughed out loud, and because it was delivered so well. So when they're when Namira's associates were trying to like strap Balana to the chair, uh-huh. you know, Namira says, "Balana, please try to relax." And and then Roxy just she just delivers that line. She's, You've got to be kidding! <laughs> I try to relax. Like, was... sure, I'll relax while you're like probing around, like sucking things out of my brain. Yeah, it's so good. Right? So, like, like never tell somebody just relax. It's like yeah, that, that is always the wrong thing, you know. I, it was an interesting little throwaway here that the, the old woman begged Gwil for the violent thought. Like, wow. I, it just makes you wonder what is up on this planet. And the answer is a lot that this yeah. sweet elderly grandma just like, yeah, I would like a taste of that violent thought. <laughs> <laughs> so delicious. Wow. Um, we've, we've said this before. Um, when when Tuvok started doing the double Vulcan mind meld hand placement, especially with Kess, yeah. if that was uh, standard practice now, because that's what Spock did to Valeris in Star Trek VI, and that was a very invasive, very violent move. Yes. Aggressive move. Very intense. Yep. You know, and he did it the exact same way to Gwil here, which brings me to Tuvok's best line in the episode. When he grabs Gwil mm-hmm. and he mind melds with him, he looks at him, he says, your pitiful skills are no match for the power of the dark side of the... <laughs> Wait, no. Wait, wrong franchise. You were so close. You were so close. Yeah. I thought it was the right thing. That was yeah. a random thought for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, speaking of another random thought, I love Seven's ending with Jane White. Now, you said that you know she was used sparingly in this episode. I thought that her scenes were the chef's kiss yeah. of this episode. Yeah. Because I love... I just love her bluntness, mm-hmm. you know, and just kind of like her her candid, like open dialogue that she has with everybody oh, because it, she doesn't really know any better. It, right? But it, it's how she's used best, and that's kind of uh, honestly, if we're not going to get that out of Tuvok, this is where you need the person to just jump in with the, you know, unerring logic <laughs> to point yeah. it out. I, I do like Janeway's response to it because it, it humanizes the situation a little bit, but it's not like Seven is wrong. How many times on our show have we said, you know, they should really just go home. <laughs> they should really just skip the planet hopping right now. Look, I, I said it before. I love the mind melt sequences. I love Inspector Tuvok. And at the end of this episode, we had, we've just gotten quite the glimpse into some dark, twisted stuff in Tuvok's mind. And to me, that is awesome. And I love seeing him be a badass. And even if we don't see him that bad anymore, we know what's kind of rolling around in that Vulcan mind of his. That is some intense stuff that really informs the character going forward. I love it. Talks is coming your way to benefit the Hollywood Food Coalition. It's on January 13th and celebrities galore will be on hand. Will John wear pants? That's the operative question. Probably not. Come and watch co-host Bonnie Gordon. She's not here right now, but I can imitate her. Oh, John, you cannot! Yes, I can! (laughs) 
We'll get right back to random thoughts after a word from this week's sponsor. So, John, I have a question that i got to ask you. Lay it on me. All right, so did you know that you can watch old Star Trek episodes on Netflix? Wait, hang on. Old Star Trek? You mean everything that came before new Star Trek? Like all the old Star Trek? If I just fire up the streaming service of my choice, which, uh, let's say, randomly Netflix, I can watch it? 800-plus hours of Star Trek. That, that is a lot of Star Trek. That is a lot of mission log, too. <laughs> it, it is true. True on both counts. So yes. if you've ever tried out there, like, searching Star Trek on Netflix and you came up short, well, that's because Netflix actually has different shows on that Netflix, depending on which country you're in. But you may have heard this one. You may be thinking of this one mm. with an app called ExpressVPN. I can change my online location so I can control where I want websites where I'm watching this content to think I'm located. I love that. You know, ExpressVPN does so much, uh, especially about security. That That's really, you know, the, the, the icing. Well, I should say that is the cake. So let's look at it this way. Uh, the cake, if you will, is the privacy and protection that ExpressVPN gives you. But the icing on that cake is that ExpressVPN lets you choose from over 100 countries. Uh, so... That means that thousands of other shows are suddenly available to you from all over the world. So it, here's how it works. If I go to ExpressVPN and I choose the country location that I want to be coming from, I want my browser to show that I'm coming from, I choose the country, I turn on ExpressVPN, click connect, and that's it. And then if I log into, oh, I don't know, say, French Netflix, yes, if I'm watching Netflix mm -hmm. from France, then I can get all of Star Trek, the original series. I can get all of Next Gen and DS9. I can get all of Voyager, which we're talking about to you right now. I can get all of Enterprise coming soon on Mission Log. They even have the full animated series. And I do love the animated series. So, yeah, don't, don't add us about its shortcomings because it is great. But that's just... <laughs> One of the things you can do when you have ExpressVPN. And it's not just all of that Star Trek content. This also works for thousands of TV shows and movies on any of the streamers that you use. Netflix, Disney+, BBC iPlayer. That's what you like to use, John. Oh, yeah. That. Absolutely. Uh, Prime Video and more. Yeah. So, I mean, the fun thing is to just poke around, change the location, fire up your streamer, hit refresh, and you will find so many thousands more shows and movies to watch. So if you want to get the most out of your streaming services, ExpressVPN, it is a no-brainer, folks. Visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support this show and watch what you want. And protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Have you ever noticed how the planets with thought police don't also have thought paramedics or even a thought fire department? It's always just thought police. Oh, Norman, where to begin mm. with our random thoughts on random thoughts? Uh, Many. You, I mean, look, you mentioned it in the uh, last segment, and I had absolutely dropped in the same note about next-gen 
justice because here's one thing right away that I love in this episode. In the great Star Trek tradition, we have this story of our away team trying to navigate the customs and laws of an alien civilization. And even though well-intentioned that they may be, they just fail when it matters, right? So absolutely, the first one that came to mind was Justice, where, of course, Wesley Crusher accidentally earns himself the death penalty and the sentencing just straight up ignored by Jean-Luc Picard. And he does that just by stumbling into the wrong patch of grass. Um, What's interesting to watch here is both Janeway and Chakotay being aligned on the level of respect to the local culture that they're going to adhere to. And it doesn't matter if it's Bellana about to have her brain scrambled. It doesn't matter that Tom is really upset about this. The rest of the crew are going to do their jobs and explore every reasonable diplomatic and, might I say, legal option that they have. And even though uh, Harry Kim plays a very small role in this episode, just that one shot of him, you get saying, like, everybody's been called back to the ship. <laughs> like, you mm-hmm. know exactly why. You know what preceded that. Uh, so I, I thought just the the diplomatic angle here or breakdown of that diplomatic angle was very interesting. I know that uh, this – I don't want to make light of, of the situation, but mm-hmm. there has to be something in kind of the, the procedure of meeting a new race and when to establish relations. And then someone, I would probably say Tuvok, addressing the crew before any type of shore leave passes or any type of rotation uh, for crew yeah. members to go down to the planet actually happened because there is something that needs to be said about – away team preparedness lectures or maybe the lack thereof when it comes to dealing with new worlds. So there is a, a scene where Janeway says, are you saying it's a crime to think about violence? And then Namira says, yes. And then Bellana says, that's ridiculous. And then Namira says, I assure you it's quite necessary. We were once a society plagued by violence. When we prohibited hostile thought, crime began to drop immediately. Over the past three generations, it's all but disappeared. So we made mention of earlier in observations that they've been on this planet prior to the incident for about three days. Right. And Janeway and Balana and even Neelix, they've been briefed enough to trade with hard currency to deal with Gwil and people in the marketplace, but nobody decided to tell them about a thought-based law violations about the issue that Balana maybe could have gotten around if she actually knew about it? Well, it, look, you are 100% right. By the way, I'm also going to put part of this blame on the Mira people because, okay, first of all, this is a first contact situation, but clearly it is okay for Voyager to do that if they determine this is a spacefaring species, that they have warp drive, et cetera, et cetera. They, they've done the homework far enough to decide, yes, we can go here and we can bring Namira up to our ship. So you have to assume there was some communication before that point. Voyager had to be in orbit, check out what their technology is. Can we stop here? Should we stop here? Is it a good idea? And if they establish communication at some point, I blame Namira or whomever is at the top of their government to hop on that comm channel and say, by the way, before you come here... (laughs) 
we're telepathic and we know that that's kind of unique. And one of the things you have to know is that it is a crime <laughs> to mm -hmm. think about anything that could be considered violent. So you may want to consider that before you just start sending people down. Look, some of that is on them. You know, you have to go through customs and they telepathic to, customs, <laughs> yeah, telepathic <laughs> customs, and they have to tell you about all of that. Full disclosure. But that's what I mean, though. Like, even if they sent, say, Neelix at first as ambassador to Voyager, I'm sure that mm -hmm. because his feelings were so strong about, am I going to, you know, establish the right diplomatic relations with a handshake or whatever the first customs are, if the telepaths were strong enough to pick up on that, they would know that they don't know anything about our culture. Why would they? You know, they're right. a space-faring race that just stopped here three days ago. Maybe we should, I don't know, tell them about our most stringent laws first Yeah. before anyone comes down. I mean, yes, I know I'm being very pedantic about it, but that's something that that Seven rightfully brings up yeah. as clear as crystal right. to the annoyance of both Neelix and Janeway. Right. Right. It's kind of funny, though, because like, as you were saying that, I kept thinking, well, Neelix is the safe one to send there as the ambassador because he's just thinking about food and, you know, and Tali, you know, like, OK, yeah, he's fine. He's fine. We don't need to worry about violent thoughts from these people. They're fine. If they're all like Neelix, we don't get the whisker thing, but sure, whatever. <laughs> just These send. are a hungry, lonely people. Yes, yes. Right? Send, send them down. Yeah. All right. But let's talk about some of the really important, uh, maybe deeper ideas here. The, the bigger picture of random thoughts. If we had just picked out thought crimes as a topic, all credit here due to George Orwell. Yes, I used the word thought crimes. I think that we could pretty much agree that you can't police what goes on in people's heads. And, and even if you could, it's inappropriate and impractical to do so. What matters from our human perspective here is intent and action. Okay, but... This is science fiction. And this is where this whole idea becomes much more fun and much more nuanced and interesting to explore. What if you have to police what goes on in people's minds because you're in a telepathic society? Does that change the nature of the appropriateness of what's going on here? And when I say have to, I mean, you can kind of put that in finger quotes if you want, because the government of the Mira people decided three generations ago that that's what they had to do. You and I, as humans, who hopefully realize that, again, uh, you know, punishing for thought crimes is unethical and immoral and completely impractical anyway, would say, no, you actually don't have to do that. In fact, it's a bad idea to do that. But we're not living in the heads of telepathic others. It might have been interesting to have Seven of Nine chime in on that as the one person on Voyager's crew who has had the voices of billions of other entities in her head. I mean, the one thing that we've glossed over, you know, with, you know, the Mari. I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you and, and uh, correct you with the Mari people versus the Miria. People. Oh, 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 sorry. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I will get uh, that wrong constantly. So, yeah. <laughs> but you had the Mari who are telepaths. And then you have Tuvok who's interacting with Namira because he's also a telepath. How is that the Vulcans haven't been seen in this way or have that talent utilized in the Federation for these kinds of purposes, for first mm -hmm. contact negotiations or for dealing with, you know, 
whatever situation they need for somebody to be a mind reader. So I, I guess that the big question is, uh, are unregulated telepaths a societal danger for the Mari? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, I need to be really careful about this because I don't want to reference a, a television show too much, but a lot of people here on Mission Log know that I'm a huge fan of another Deep Space franchise series. <laughs> and that it aired around the same time as Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Yeah. Okay. So in that series, there's a human organization that trains and governs humans with the gift of telepathy. Now, these trained telepaths are then endorsed by this organization to become the intermediaries for business people who require representation so that their business dealings are protected from any kind of obfuscation or manipulation. If someone is being a little less than truthful or if there are lies involved or any kind of like leverage or criminal intent in order to get, gain the one-up, the one-upsmanship that happens mm-hmm. in these types of commercial dealings. So when Jane Wayne Bolana and in, to some degree Neelix, when they were faced with, say, how invasive uh, Gwil and Tally were with their probing, mm-hmm. I mean, even, I mean, Tally, I mean, it wasn't innocent, but I mean, she got into some of Neelix's most personal thoughts about yeah. how he felt about her. Yeah. So I'm wondering, was anyone else as surprised as I was that the Mari as a whole just let their society run rampantly with their telepathic ability this way without the oversight of having an organization to curb the unwanted or unwarranted reading of people's minds or emotions at will. Well, see, I think you're getting a, really the heart of the episode, which is to say that you, you can't, if you just decide that an idea is bad and you just say, to a society through government action or whatever, like, okay, uh, these ideas are off limits, therefore you can't think them anymore. That is, at its very nature, going to be a failure. I, my, my aunt and I were talking not that long ago, and she was a school teacher forever and ever, and we were talking about kind of the the current cultural, political, really disturbing trend of schools banning more books, certainly that more so than they did when I was going to school. And she uh, very much against that idea. And she says, I have the perfect way to get kids to read, which is you show up in class one day and you bring a whole stack of books and you put those off in a corner somewhere and you say, you can, you can read anything you want out of the library, but not those. Those books are off limits. Those are dangerous books with ideas that you shouldn't be exposed to. You can't read those. Mm-hmm. What books do you think they're going to go for? I right. mean, that, that is the easiest, fastest way to get a kid to read Tom Sawyer, or Huckleberry Finn, or Slaughterhouse-Five, or, I, you know, you name it. Uh, th- those are all on banned books lists, by the way. But yeah, that, that's absolutely the way to do it. So the, the joke here is this, you know, quasi-police force uh, headed up by somebody like Namira. And who knows how many Namiras there are. They, they could be everywhere. But just decreeing that a thing is off-limits, okay, now you've created a market for it. Well, I mean, the thing is she said that she was um, one of a few of this constabulary that exists because, the, you know, removing the uh, aspect of violent thoughts from the society allows them to kind of go on autopilot. Mm-hmm. But you can't put a whole society on autopilot because when the plane starts to drop out of the sky, yeah. 
you got to find a pilot who can only just fly the plane but didn't have fish for dinner. <laughs> and I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> nice, nicely done. You know? Yeah, we haven't had a good uh, airplane reference in a while, so thank you for that. Yeah. While we're at it, uh, you and I, I'm just speaking for all non-telepathic humans or, or maybe just us at the moment, you know. Um, I do think it is interesting to make a distinction here about negative thoughts and negative behavior because that gets at the crux of what this episode is about. Namira says, it is an irrefutable fact that violent thoughts Thoughts from others can lead to violent actions. This is a tricky area to navigate. And and this is why every generation that I'm aware of, you know, there's always the thing. There's always the cultural ideal boogeyman that somebody goes after and says, no, 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 we, we have to ban this. We have to get rid of this because the thought is dangerous. And I do think there is a distinction to be made here that beliefs can and do motivate actions, but thoughts are what exactly? They're, they're different from beliefs. Thoughts are, and kind of ruminating here after a little bit of research, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts huh, and our mm. audience, that thoughts are moments that the brain tests a course of action or grapples with a reaction or a new idea, as opposed to a belief, which is something else. It's a conviction about truth that is being convinced that a proposition is true. So in this situation, say, among these people, you can believe wholeheartedly that violence is wrong, but you can think a violent thought simply because it pops into your head, simply because there was a, a catalyst or a reason or a prodding to do so. But that doesn't actually change the belief on the other side. I remember this was in another, I think this was in a Star Trek movie, and forgive me for not, because I'm just thinking about this on the fly. Mm. But someone Randomly. That, uh, uh, randomly. randomly. Yeah, I'm yeah. randomly thinking about this on the fly, but there's mm. something in a, in one of the movies where I think Dr. McCoy said this. He said, well, you can't persecute someone for having a feeling. It's kind of like the same thing. Mm. You can't persecute somebody for having a thought, because they kind of go hand in hand, like the way Neelix and his whisker umlocks were, you know, being exposed <laughs> in, in this in this episode. Right. Thoughts, you know, that he, that's, I, I think I'm in love, or I, I think that I'm hungry. You know, those are thoughts. Yeah. Do you believe that you're hungry, or do you think you're hungry? So that, you you bring up an interesting proposition, but the I think the interesting thing about this is that there's the, the commercialization and the commerce of these thoughts and the I love how it starts in the marketplace here because it's really about supply and demand. You know, we're dealing yeah. with a product. And I thought yeah. that the whole idea of violent thoughts being able to be marketed and packaged and sold as a black market product. Yeah. Is interesting. It's super interesting because it seems to me that this, you know, the Mars civilization, you know, they are based in a certain amount of commerce and a certain amount of hierarchy with uh, goods and exchanged and services, you know, being bought and paid for. But like you said, with the books, what do you think is going to happen when you isolate and quarantine something that only a handful of people in the upper echelon of society deem as being dangerous or some type of contraband that is illegal? That yeah. is like the sexiest, the most attractive thing that you want. Maybe yeah. that's what that old woman wanted. She's like, I would like to try what the kids are doing these days. Yeah. Give me right. one of those violent right. thoughts, right? Because well, why and, would she want that? Yeah. 
Well, and that's what Ken Biller has really drilled down to here, because every time somebody tries to ban a book or a song or a movie, what have you, what they're trying to ban is the idea. What they're trying to ban is the thought behind it, because they think the thought is dangerous. But I'm here to tell you that you can burn as many books as you want. The thought still survives. If the images in Tuvok's head are anything to go by, the Burning Man Festival on Vulcan is a whole different party. So I think uh, after all this discussion, we've we finally consolidated all of our random thoughts into probably more focused thoughts towards the end of this episode, because what we do here on Mission... Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, more random thoughts? Yeah. Well... Hey, that's why they're random. Uh, but what we do at the end of uh, every Mission Log episode, we take a look at the episode in total, all of our thoughts, random or otherwise, and see two things. If this episode holds up and withstands the test of time, and then does it have any morals or meanings or messages that we non-telepaths have been able to glean from the episode? So uh, I guess we're going to start with John and see if he's able to coalesce his random thoughts into less random thoughts for random thoughts yeah i mean look if we're going with latin then october should really be the eighth month of the year what sorry was that just too random that just randomly popped into my head uh yeah no all right i'll move on okay okay uh (laughs) random thoughts i think this episode holds up very well in one regard it is just a classic slice of star trek storytelling it would have played nicely with tos or tng just insert other characters here that's fine but that doesn't mean that it is boring or predictable in fact quite the opposite when i thought i had this one pegged and knew exactly where we were going the script takes the time to throw us some very interesting curveballs so i really appreciate that i think the acting here is strong all around but this one definitely elevates Tim Russ as the MVP in the episode. And I wish we got more of him like this. I really appreciate peeling back the Vulcan facade to reveal the terrifying ideas bouncing around in their psyches. So good. I want more. Yeah, this is definitely a winner for me. What about you? Those thoughts weren't random at all. Those are very poignant, focused, concise thoughts. Well, except, okay, if March is named after Mars Mm -hmm. as the god of war, why that? I don't know. I'm going to need to workshop this a little bit more. Okay. Just more random thoughts. I think you should go back to uh, Caesar. I I thought you were onto something there. Well, that was the whole point of Augustus in August. And, you know, that just, think about that the whole episode. Well, what about salads? You know? Oh, no, no, that's uh, that's South American. That is a Cesar salad if we want to go that route what yeah. about cesar chavez mm, okay so we okay uh, you look you better all do right. this okay. because i'll just be thinking about salads and um yeah all right yeah I'll go, right, back. go I'll, ahead i'll focus my thoughts so uh <laughs> okay i think the questions that were posited in this episode are incredibly powerful you know I, I think that the idea of thought police you know being able to convict someone for just thinking about an idea um, mm-hmm. or a topic or an emotion that's punishable by a lobotomy, that's pretty powerful stuff. So you have, um, yeah. I'm not sure if a lot of people out there saw this movie, but you have Steven Spielberg's Minority Report, which was actually Stanley Kubrick's Minority Report, which was actually Philip K. Dick's 1956 <laughs> novella, Minority Report. 
And it's kind of like one of the best versions of this kind of a trope where you have precogs stopping crimes because they are the thought police that prevents the crime from happening because they can monitor thoughts. But that's kind of also very ominous at the same way. I'm frustrated by this episode. Now, what I, uh, does it hold up? Yes. But I am frustrated by this episode because the entire plot device that puts Bellana in danger of the lobotomy hinges on a pure act of ignorance of the law. That, yeah. it, it just frustrates me to no end, just like justice does from the next generation. So we are under the impression that on Voyager, you have the best and brightest of Starfleet because you make it onto a starship because you're incredibly smart you know, and you're incredibly mm-hmm. intelligent. And these people just wouldn't summarily violate a new species law that they just came into contact with. So the logical conclusion is they never knew about the customs to begin with, which in this scene illustrates this perfectly. Janeway says to Tom, who's concerned about Bellana, you know the rules, Tom. We can't pick and choose which laws we'll respect and which we won't. Then later on, Tuvok says to Bellana at the end of this episode, it is incumbent upon us to respect the laws of the societies we visit. But the big question is based on the logic of what happened to Bellana, not knowing the law is, how do you respect laws that you obviously don't know about or you would never have violated in them in the first place? You can't yeah. break a law that you don't know that is a law that shouldn't be broken. You know, it's so interesting as you're saying that, and I think your criticism is very well founded. I wonder if that could have been helped just somewhere in the teaser to establish that they knew this and that this was part of the condition of being there is that they have to come down in small groups, that they are being monitored, et cetera, et cetera. And Bellana is very specifically singled out to force this experience. I mean, yes, she is as it is revealed in the episode, but like all of that gets sort of unveiled later. And I think you kind of need this up front, but maybe they experimented with that and felt like it tipped the hat too soon. But I I think you're right. It it takes something away from their agency as Starfleet to kind of know this stuff before they show up. And I think we lose uh, a huge opportunity here to also really get into kind of uh, Bellana's her struggle with her duality. And that's something that was brought up by Tuvok, Mm. who sympathizes Mm -hmm. with at the end. That's a great scene. And if they focused on that more, like, let's target this person, let's target this Klingon, because from what we understand, from what our telepathic spies have gleaned from this crew, this is the most volatile person that, that we can, like, set our plan in motion with. And then go mm. from there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I thought that the acting was great. You credit uh, Tim as Tuvok, rightfully yeah. so, because I loved it too. But I really thought that Chakotay was a step up above normal here. And I really mm. liked that scene with him and Tom because he was not only just sympathetic, but he straddled this really fine line between uh, action and diplomacy. He wanted to take action, but he also needed to be kind of like the cool head that prevailed in the room with Tom. So that's something that we don't see a lot of with Chakotay consistently. And I like that they showed that here. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, that leaves morals, meanings, messages. And I do feel like this episode is biting off some very interesting nuggets for us to chew on. Um, At the time of this episode, uh, we're talking late 90s, the latest pop culture influence to be demonized was video games those taking the blame i know taking the blame for violent behavior among teens but honestly 
I have a little historical perspective here, okay? Just plug in whatever cultural influence you want to be the blame. Comic books, rock music, take a few more decades back and blame jazz, because they certainly did at the time. While I do think that words and ideas can be powerful, it amazes me when every generation thinks that they've stumbled upon the one bad idea or the one unsavory book or author or album or movie and then works feverishly to wipe it from public availability as if by symbolically burning the product can somehow erase the human capacity for intellect and imagination no matter where those pursuits will take us. Censorship is a fear response. It doesn't stop to ask why or how, and it completely lacks perspective. Censorship is a feel-good lie. It's proven when Namira has no idea what's happening in her own world, and it's proven again and again right here on Earth where the most vociferous advocates fail to quash ideas. Oh, hang on. Uh, one more thing. In the end, the thought is just the thought. Uh, Gwill and Frayn were the responsible parties because they were the ones trading in those violent thoughts. So really, the enemy is greed. Contrary to what you may have heard, greed is not good. That's a wonderful Wall Street reference, by the way. Well done. Plus one to <laughs> You're you. You're welcome. <laughs> the big question that uh, I think I came away with is, is there any free will if what you think can be policed, Right. Because, I mean, isn't that like the, one of the most fundamental questions in like any society which challenges democracy in all of its forms at the very core? Do the Mari enjoy a nonviolent and peaceful and cultural existence as a society? Arguably, yes. But at what cost? What the constabulary and um, Namira essentially achieved for the Mari may have been a better path for their people because, you know, Tuvok extrapolated on this is what the Vulcans did with Surak to remove their violent history and their violent tendencies and savagery from the Vulcan people at large because it was the only logical solution to avoid worldwide, you know, annihilation, you know, of mm -hmm. the Vulcan planet at their own hands. But allowing a centralized law enforcement, quote unquote, to be able to dictate what they deem is necessary to evolve their society isn't a foreign concept. I mean, what is troubling uh, and what I believe this episode's moral cautionary tale is, is tampering with the natural law of biological desires and urges. Our emotions give us thought, and those thoughts dictate and inform our actions. Now, to be sure, we are creatures prone to aggression and violence, you know, and the law is what tries to prevent violations based on those thoughts. But when does this end? When do the powers that regulate that which can and can't be deemed appropriate for society impact the very growth of society itself. A step too far with this kind of totalitarian dynamic and we're on the brink of dystopia. When thought is controlled by a central authority, then what exactly are we? Because if we don't allow ourselves to challenge that central authority, well, Rush stated it best from their album and track of the same title, 2112. Here we go, here we go. When the priests yeah. of Syrinx declared from their temples on high, we've taken care of everything. The words you read, the songs you sing, the pictures that give pleasure to your eye. One for all and all for one. Work together, common sons. Never need to wonder how or why. 
Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Concerning Flight. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shadable, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. For a real random thought, imagine that random number of rockhopper penguins reacting to Neelix cooking for them. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.